All right, if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we started the book of Mark last week, and we're actually going to back up and cover just a little bit of what we did cover last week. I was not able to, or not not able, I just didn't wrap the way that I wanted to there at the end in verses 11 and 12. So we're going to be Mark 1, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And as we talked about last week, and just for those of you who haven't been here, we spent the first seven weeks walking through the book of Malachi, which chapter 1 of Mark makes a reference uh, to Malachi, one of two references in the New Testament to the book of Malachi, and goes back and refers to God sending the one that's going to come before Jesus. Uh, and it's an answer to a question that the nation of Israel is asking, where is the God of justice? And so the answer to that question, God answers in saying, I'm going to send a servant who's going to come before me and prepare the way, and then the Lord of, or the God of justice will show up. And last week we talked about the beginning of Mark being, here you have John the Baptist shows up, who was foretold all the way back in Malachi, and he shows up, prepares the way for Jesus, and then Jesus is on the scene. And we talked about the baptism of Jesus, and then we'll move forward today. But the answer to, like we said last week, of where is the God of justice? And back in Malachi chapter 3, when God says, I am coming... Be steadfast in your worship of God. Come back to me. Where's the God of justice? He is coming. I am coming. We hit Mark 1, and now it is he's here, and that's Jesus. And last week, like I said, we talked about the baptism of Jesus, and today we will pick up in verse 12, which is right after the baptism of Jesus. Um, And Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's come out. The heavens have opened up. A dove has descended, and the voice of God has said, You are my son, and who am well pleased. And then in verse 12, it says, at once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. And so in Matthew and in Luke, they both give the same account, except it's much longer. It's much more extensive. You have Jesus being baptized and afterwards the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert or the wilderness, whatever you want to translate that as. You can do both. But he goes there and then is tempted by Satan. And in both Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, you have three specific things that he's addressed with by Satan. And we see that he has a conversation with, Satan tempts him, he overcomes in referring back to scripture, and at the end you see that the angels attend to him. Mark, however, is very brief about this encounter. Like I said, Matthew and Luke both go in depth, uh, but yet Mark just says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert or into the wilderness. What I want to note as we kind of walk through this quick, quick section of what Mark does in all three accounts, but here specifically it says, immediately, the Holy Spirit sent him into the wilderness. This is very interesting because you have baptism and then immediately this takes place. This is what's next. And like we said last week, Mark goes through the story rather quickly. He is He's moving quickly through the storyline. He doesn't even address the way Luke does. He goes in and addresses. Luke says, you know, here's the story of the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist. Here's how it all works out. And you get a little bigger picture of the story. Matthew will go back and list out and tell you at least the lineage of Jesus. Mark, however, John the Baptist, Jesus, and we're running. And so that's just kind of characteristic of Mark. And so immediately Jesus is sent, but he's led by the Spirit. On the onset of his ministry, obviously Jesus has grown up and he's been very impressive in who he's encountered so far and what he knows, the questions he asks, and we draw that from uh, both Matthew and uh, Luke text and even some in John. Mark, obviously, like I said, he doesn't do, do with, deal with Jesus before uh, beforehand. He hits onset of ministry. But we see, to begin with, Jesus is directed, led by, sent by the Holy Spirit. 
like we talked about last week, the baptism of Jesus being one of those accounts we can look at and we can at least be able to describe what we believe about God in a Trinitarian aspect, being God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all being one, however, that we still wouldn't argue that we can comprehend, but it is a is a great place to go to be able to describe God working and seeing God working in three specific distinct ways in three persons. And so here we have, once again, you've got Jesus and he's led by the Spirit. And so you see God working in distinct ways. But at the onset of his ministry, he's led, directed by the Holy Spirit. And one thing we don't want to do is ever not remember, not focus on the direction, the leading, the intervention of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we know God, as we follow Jesus, remembering that that as we are living, being impactful, desiring to follow God, to be used for his kingdom, it's done through the, the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And so it's just, it's very interesting that Mark makes sure to indicate he's led by the Spirit the same way that we should be, uh, as we, as we go forward in pursuing life and pursuing God and pursuing those for Jesus should be led in our decisions and what we do, how we act, how we think. We should be consumed by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes and says, be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit. And he's dealing with a couple different issues there, but just nuts and bolts is, your life should be directed by God, by the Holy Spirit inside of you. And we talked about that before, but being inside the sphere of influence of God, the Holy Spirit does the direction. So it's good for us not to forget to continue to remember the work of the Holy Spirit actively in our lives today. So the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. It says he's in the desert or the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, here you have an illusion. You have two different illusions going on as Mark is telling the story. And then he goes on and says he's with the wild animals. The angels attend to him. There are two illusions taking place. You have Jesus. He immediately, he's been baptized. Immediately the Spirit sends him into the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. You've got an allusion back to the nation of Israel going into the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, going to the promised land. And they're wandering for 40 years. The same when Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and you have this taking place. And so there's an allusion back to the nation of Israel and the whole idea of deliverance and salvation. Not only that, but the idea of somebody coming from the wilderness or the desert is a symbolic bringing of salvation or deliverance or redemption. It goes all the way back to Elijah and it goes then to John. There's a connection between John and Elijah. We talked some about last week because John comes from the wilderness and he's dressed uh, in a hairy robe, and he's got a leather belt on, and he eats, eats bugs and honey. Uh, but it gives us this illusion that, or not an illusion, but a symbolic meaning of, as John comes, he's coming in bringing in the message of salvation. Actually, he's coming in preparing the way to do that. And then Jesus, immediately after being baptized in the onset of his ministry, where does he go? He goes to the wilderness, from where he will come, bringing, once again, he's bringing salvation, deliverance, redemption, in the same way that Israel's coming out and going into the wilderness, and they will move into salvation, redemption, deliverance from, from captivity. So you have the symbolic, and then again here you've got this allusion from Jesus back to Israel. And then also, you see he's being tempted by Satan, and he's with the animals, and the angels are attending him. And another allusion that's brought out is all the way back to Adam. This is, this is a very interesting concept that's going on here, because he's being tempted by Satan, and he's with the wild animals. And so... As he's going through these 40 days of temptation, 
like I said, in the desert, you've got an allusion back to Adam because Adam is living in the garden. In the storyline, if you all go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you have Adam and Eve. They're hanging out. God has created. He's made man. He's formed him. He's breathed the spirit of life into him. He's living. He's living the way God told him to. And then you have the serpent of old, as referred to in Revelation, comes up, talks with Eve, and then Adam and Eve both eat from a fruit from a tree in the Garden of Eden in which God told them not to. And then the fall of man takes place. Well, this is an allusion all the way back to Adam. Adam being tempted inside of the garden, and he's with the wild animals. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's surrounded by the wild animals, in which would normally be dangerous. However, for Jesus, he's hanging out with no problem. Why? Because he's the Son of God. And he's tempted by Satan for 40 days, and we see that he walks out of that. If we go back in Matthew and Luke, we both we see the descriptive accounts of those things happening. We see Jesus victorious as he moves out of the wilderness over Satan in a way that Adam was not. And so what we see with Jesus in this picture and then in Matthew and Luke both in the descriptive accounts, in this allusion back to Adam, God made Adam with an intention. And, and, and most of you have probably heard sermons of intention of relationship, intention of doing a job, intention of overseeing what God had created, and all these things, intention with relationship with God. But what we see in Jesus in the way he actually does things, is what God would have intended for Adam to do. And so what you see in the personification of what Jesus does in the wilderness in overcoming Satan and dealing with animals, and he's totally fine, and he has relationship with God because the angels are attending to him, so he's not alone, which being alone in the wilderness would have been viewed as a he's crazy or he's de- uh, demonic, uh, possessed, something like that. And so we hear that's wrapped up with the angels that are with him. But you have Jesus now is the correction for what God originally made. Jesus now is the picture of this is what God made and this is what God intended, which broke, but this is how it's supposed to look. And then Jesus moves from there. And again, we see this idea, this symbolic concept of salvation, deliverance, redemption coming from Jesus and the message he's bringing as he moves out of the wilderness. So, very interesting, something we didn't cover last week, which I meant to, so I apologize for not getting there. But as we move forward now, um, in verse 14, we have Jesus. He's now beginning pursuing ministry. In verse 14, it says, After John was put in prison, or he's handed over, or he's arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. Just one quick reference as John is put into prison is also the same term used when Jesus is arrested uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a concept of giving over. Almost this idea of a divine uh, ordained event, which John Calvin would argue that all events are God-ordained. But uh, outside of that, you could say that this one specifically in connection with Jesus' handing over, John is handed over. God's full knowledge of John is sent with a mission and a ministry that he's going to prepare the way for Jesus. He goes and he preaches repentance and baptism in prepping the way for salvation for Jesus to show up. And at the end of his ministry, he is handed over the same way Jesus in doing ministry comes preaching the coming kingdom of God, preaching redemption, preaching repentance, preaching salvation, and then is handed over. And John's handing over can also be an allusion to the same as as John came with a mission in speaking and from God. John comes with a call from God to go out and do ministry and is handed over in the same way Jesus will have have much the same kind of, not timeline, 
but it will look the same. So anyways, that, that's just a quick reference to, to fast forward way, way forward, but it's not just a he's put in prison, but he's handed over, he's arrested, he's given up uh, in this idea of given up by God. So Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so Jesus begins his ministry by saying, he goes into Galilee and says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so this idea of repentance and believing, there's some kind of marriage between these two concepts and then knowing God. Now here's, I don't know how many of you have heard of, heard youth talks or heard different people describe what repent means, but it typically is described as, or I have heard it described as repent is, you're walking one way, as I'm walking to stage left, I think, is it, is it stage left because you're looking at the left? I don't remember. I'm walking to what Case is calling stage left, but then in repentance I would turn and walk to stage right, correct? And that would be repentance. It would be going one way, turning around and going the other. That's actually incorrect here. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to throw the Greek card at you, not so you'll think I'm smart, but just so you'll know, we can't do certain things with certain passages because we have to be aware of what's in the text. And so right here, the concept that's being communicated is, it's actually the word metaneo, which is I repent, I change my mind, I convert, and it's the concept of I recognize I'm broken. To turn, to turn around, to turn back to God is, is a phrase that's used, it's a verb that is used. If you go to Acts 3, Paul uses it in his second sermon. He, he is addressing part of the nation of Israel. He's addressing a people group who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And it, it literally, it is a part of the salvation message he is giving. And he says, repent and turn. However, repent does not mean turn. Repent is a recognition. I'm sorry. I recognize I'm broken. I have changed my mind. I have converted. It is not a turn and walk. It's a recognize I'm broke. And so Jesus comes preaching this message that repent, recognize that you're broken. Change your mind. About who you are, about what you believe. Recognize that you don't have it all together. Recognize that you're broken and then to believe in the good news, which is the gospel. This is the story about Jesus. As the New Testament plays out, the good news is the story of Jesus. God became man. He became one of us. He put flesh on. God took what was what hated him, what was an abhorrence to God, even though he loved it, because of sin. He took and put on himself, became one of us, was rejected, was crucified and then defeated both Satan, defeated death so that we could know God. That's the good news. And so he says, change your mind, recognize you're broke and trust in Jesus. That is the basics of the salvation message that Jesus brings. Now in a minute we're going to talk about discipleship and uh, the, the costliness of it. But I just wanted to address to begin with the first thing that Mark records that Jesus writes, whether it's John Mark who followed Peter and Paul or whether it's Mark. We talked uh, when we started this thing. It could have there. There are a few options on who wrote this. I would argue that traditionally it was probably John Mark. 
to fit into the canon because you have a guy who is following people who lived with Jesus. And so he would then write a story and then that would fit into some categories of what would make it scripture. So I would argue that early New Testament, uh, church fathers would, would have gone with, uh, John Mark and some did. Uh, regardless, Mark writes or John Mark writes and he's writing to more than likely a group of people in Rome, some of which are Gentiles, some of which are Jewish, uh, it, but he's arguing for He's making an apology for the crucifixion of Jesus. Not only that it did happen, but he's arguing who Jesus is. He's presenting Jesus in a divine light because being crucified in the Roman community was the penalty of the worst of the worst. So if we think about that, if we have Paul shows up or Peter shows up in Rome and he's preaching that this man came and was crucified by the Romans on a cross, but he's he's God and he's good and he's come to bring deliverance the automatic cultural connection for a Roman person is, why would I believe in a criminal to forgive me for sins? You're crazy. And obviously, it takes God working in and conversion and all those things, and it works because the gospel spread. However, Mark is writing more than likely, or at least for some reason, is writing it and sending to the Roman community. Here I'm making a defense for the divine nature of Jesus, for who Jesus was, presenting Jesus in a positive light and make an apology for the crucifixion and then salvation. So, we see Jesus, like I said, he comes, shows up, and the first thing he brings, the time has come, again, the answer, where's the God of justice from Malachi? He's here. The time has come, and the kingdom of God is near. Repent, change your mind, make a recognition they're broken, and trust in Jesus. Basic gospel message. In verse 16, he goes on, it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, Zebedee excuse me, and his brother John in the boat, or John the Less, or like really raw translated like John the Small, kind of a stinky name. He may have been short. He may have just been the younger one. We're not totally sure. But being John the Small, uh, how, how would you feel playing football in high school? And your nickname is Small. What's up, Small? Small Spot. That actually is a nickname. Is it Small's in, uh, what is that movie? Sandlot. There it is. Come on. You're killing me, Smalls. Has everybody seen that? Please? Yes? Okay. Most people? All right. Fantastic. It has nothing to do with the passage. So, he, he runs into James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And so, here you have an account of the first disciples who were called by Jesus, which you have in the other Gospels. Uh, but again, here you have Mark gets to, he, he's moving quickly. You've got baptism. You've got, he deals with Satan very quickly, deals with Satan, and then he moves forward. And one thing I wanted to refer to back with, with verse 13 is, at the onset of his ministry, we see that Jesus has already de- defeated Satan and evil. And actually, the passage right after the call of the disciples is a, a clear indication that Jesus is now has authority over evil. And so on the onset, he's led by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, he's already defeated Satan. He's already defeated evil. And then throughout ministry and then his death and resurrection, he will defeat death and fully bring in redemption to man. So... Um, back to the story, though. So you've got Jesus walking beside uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is a fishing community. 
uh, it's surrounded by multiple communities. Capernaum is, is on the northern end, which is a, uh, a large fishing community. But he addresses, he walks up and he addresses Simon uh, and his brother Andrew, Simon being Peter. And it says they're uh, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, he said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and they followed him. So Jesus is walking. He's doing his ministry. He's coming. He's speaking. We don't know how much time has lapsed between his time in the wilderness and this whole encounter with Satan and all that that goes on. And then his time here in Galilee, he's walking by. But he encounters Peter and Andrew and he says, as they are fishing, come and follow me. And it says they they leave their nets and they follow him. Not only do they leave it, it, the term being used, again, I'm going to throw a lot at you today, but there's there's so much here of what is taking place. They let go. They set free. It's a term used for divorce of their nets. And they go, and it says, it says, follow me. It says, come behind me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And at once, they set free, they divorced their profession, and walked behind Jesus. It goes on and says, we had gone a little farther, he saw James and he saw John preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Again, walking behind Jesus. And these these men, multiple uh, theories, concepts, studies have been done about these guys and who they were, how old they were, uh, there's a belief that the disciples were no older than 12 uh, at this time because of the way the educational system worked and how a rabbi would approach uh, his uh, pupils and how old they would be and all those things. But in this storyline, regardless of how old these guys are, it's very clear what they're doing. One, they have a profession. They are fishermen. Not only that, they're in a strong fishing community, the Sea of Galilee. That's what took place there. Not only that, you've got uh, at least James and John being described as they're in the boats, they're preparing nets, and after they've left their father, it says the hired men are in the boats as well. More than likely, these guys are not the lowest of the community. They're not hired out hands. They're not day labor people. These guys are owners, or at least sons of owners of fishing businesses who very possibly had one boat, multiple boats. They would rent out to others. They obviously hired people that came in and fished for them, and they were also working with their father. Which in doing so, I mean, it was, it was a family business concept. What was Jesus? He was a carpenter. Why? Because his dad was. That's the way things worked back then. Whatever your dad did as you were educated, and then once you moved out of the educational system, you would go into training with your father, and he would train you then to do what he did. And then you would take over, and then dad would die, and you would do the same. That's how it worked. So their father would be running the business and training his sons. Here, here we go. And when dad is gone, they take over and then run the fishing community or the fishing business inside that community. And this man named Jesus shows up and says, leave and walk behind me. And these men immediately, both cases, this is the third time Mark has used this, immediately, they set free their nets, they leave their father, they leave their home, they leave their community, they leave their families. Were they married? I don't know. I don't think so. They left their job, they left their families, they left their dads, they left their businesses. To the point where it may have been offensive to dad. If your dad and you're in the boat who you've raised two boys, 
and you're now fishing together and you're doing the family business together and these guys are going to take over for you and they're going to carry your name. And some guy they've never, well, they actually had encountered before, but some guy shows up you're not real acquainted with and says, hey, come and walk behind me. And they drop it and say, peace out, dad, get out of the boat and they're gone. That's offensive for dad. It not only is it offensive for dad, but it's hard for the it's hard for the guys. It, it is for me, and I'm not saying that I'm walking behind Jesus in the same case. But as I was called to ministry, it meant a few things. I grew up in Amarillo. It meant that more than likely cases and live in Amarillo. My whole family lives in Amarillo. My dad is my best friend who lives in Amarillo. And I'll call and talk to dad on the phone, and we'll talk about different things he's doing on the house, working in the backyard. And I always feel bad because here my dad raised now a 30-year-old man who is very attractive and very strong and pick, can pick anything up and fix almost anything. I mean, the kid's a genius. And what did he do? He left home. Yeah. No, but I, I do. I mean, I feel bad. So when I go home, I'm like, Dad, what do you want me to do? You know, is, is there a rock I can move? Or, you know, what What do you got? And so I can I can at least relate some with this relationship because you have a dad who is raised, you know, culturally. I can't go back and say what the relationship is between Zebedee and these two boys. And, and I can only make assumptions. But there has to be some dynamic there. There's two guys that work with their dad on a daily basis and have probably for some time. And they leave and they are gone. They don't come back. And again, this concept is almost offensive to what Jesus is calling these men to do. And it's, he, he's not fully expressing to them what you're going to do yet. And it's going to cost all one their lives. In the traditional belief system, you've got John who uh, ends up on Patmos at an, at an old age. And Revelation comes to him and he writes the book of Revelation. But the other three are persecuted and killed for what they are sharing in the gospel as they move forward after Jesus sets forth what they're going to do in a mission. But here, it's very brief. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come and walk behind me, and they leave. Again, as we paint this picture of who Jesus is, Jesus is God. He has enough authority. He has enough charisma. He has enough draw to when he walks up to the side of a boat and looks at two guys that he has just had a brief encounter with and says, drop everything and walk behind me. Immediately, without question, without discussion, without praying, without making a sacrifice, without going through a process, they get out of the boat and they walk behind Jesus for the rest of their lives. One thing that I want to draw out of here, you have Jesus making a call of men. Which is a divine call of these four guys for what they will do the rest of their lives. When Jesus calls them, he's very specific. He walks up and he says, drop your nets, walk behind me. It's very clear. They don't have to question. What's he talking about? Do we need to discuss this? Bro, we need to sit down and pray and see really what it is that God is directing us to do here. No. He's very specific. Drop it. Get out. Let's go. And they do so. And as I've thought about this concept and walked through different characters in the Bible, God often 
when he calls, almost always, in fact, I haven't found one yet, when God is calling to a specific purpose, he, he doesn't make himself clear. Which can be reassuring for us as we ask questions about, God, what do you have for me in life? What is it that I'm supposed to do? As followers of Christ and as we, as we raise kids in church and as we bring, bring everybody up, there are a few things that we like to staple on this whole idea of being a Christian. And that, you know, if you go back to Jeremiah uh, 29 11, uh, we use that as a benchmark and they do it at DBU. I just gave a DBU shout out. Um, Logan's from DBU. Uh, but, but Jeremiah 29 11 is, is one that they've, they've got a statue and they paste it everywhere. And it's, uh, God saying, through the prophet Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to not to harm you, for a hope, for a future. And we like to use that and say God has a plan for your life. Specifically, that he's molded for you. That makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And that's cool. It's wrong. It's out of context. Jeremiah is talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to those who are in exile, who are broken, who are defeated who are in captivity, and he says, God is saying to the prophet Jeremiah, God has a plan for you. God chose you. God is going to use you. God will redeem you. And we see that storyline playing out in Jesus. We pull some things from God. Does God make a plan for people? Sure. Is it specific for everyone? I don't think so. Because when it is specific, he's clear. And that could be on multiple levels. I think God does call clearly to specific things, but when he does, he's going to tell you. What you don't have to do is sit down and go, man, what am I doing right now? You know, I'm in a service right now. I'm in I'm not saying this is it right now, but if you're in a service and you feel convicted about missions, is God calling me to missions? I don't know. I need to sit down and pray. And you pray for six months about it, and you feel like you're torn and you don't have an answer. And where are you going? You don't need to worry so much. Because if God wanted you to go to Tanzania to be a missionary, guess what? He would be clear and specific and you would know it. You can rely on the fact that Jesus from the storyline throughout Scripture that God is clear. When He calls you, He will tell you. If He hasn't told you specifically, then what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to love people. I'm supposed to love God. And I'm supposed to pursue the kingdom of God where I'm at. That really is what it comes down to. And so we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to spend all this time praying about God. And those are good things to do. When you begin to question, you know, what's the next step in life? Is it whether it's a job, whether it's how I raise my family, whatever it is that I'm doing next, it's good to ask for wisdom from God and go back and say, God, please show me, direct me, give me wisdom. That's fantastic. But you don't have to worry, have I missed the boat for God's plan for my life? No, you haven't, because God would tell you. You don't have to. If you missed the boat, you know it, because when God said do this, you said no. That's when you would know. But he calls them specifically and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come and follow me or come and walk behind me. We've talked about, or I've talked about before, I guess we haven't in the service yet, this concept of what it means to follow Jesus. Knowing God and being a disciple, it's all wrapped into one. In the repenting and recognizing and trusting and believing You've got relationship with God. What is that supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like I get out of a boat, I drop my net, and I walk behind Jesus. And I'm not saying Jesus is calling you to walk behind him here. 
But later we see John writes in 1 John and he says, those who claim to know God will walk around the way Jesus did. It's the same concept that's presented here. Jesus says, walk behind me. John says, those who know God will walk around the way Jesus did. To be a Christian, to know God is to be a disciple, is to follow Jesus in his footsteps. And here he is opening up and he's beginning what that's going to look like. And again, it wraps up here. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. Following Jesus comes with sacrifice. I'm sure you've heard before the relationship with Jesus is free, but yet it's costly. And that is true. Because the grace of God is freely given to you, something you cannot and will not and would not ever be able to earn. Because God loves you and you're broken. And Jesus says, recognize you're broken and trust in me. And you move forward. But to follow Jesus is a sacrifice. The four men that follow Jesus sacrifice everything, literally everything they have. They get out of a boat and they walk behind him. And that's a specific call from God. And again, all of us probably don't have or haven't heard yet of or, you know, it, the way that they did here, we don't have the same call that they did. Peter, James, John, Andrew, we don't have that specific call. I'm not sure what God has revealed to you in your life. I do not know. However, I do know that God has revealed to us that to follow him comes with a sacrifice. And it, it could be a financial sacrifice. It could be a physical, I'm going, when God specifically calls you, I'm leaving where I'm at. I'm leaving a job. I'm leaving community. I'm leaving my friends. For case that was, I'm leaving my family. I'm leaving my home. I'm leaving everything I've known. And I'm going to go pursue what God has specifically called me to. But to follow Jesus is to live sacrificially. To reach out to your neighbors is a sacrifice. To know the five people that will live around you take sacrifice on your part to come home and sacrifice the time you could go in, walk, walk in, sit down and rest is a sacrifice for those people for the kingdom of God. To invite people into your home is a sacrifice of your home, of your time, of maybe your food. When a need is presented to you, and you recognize somebody needs food, they need clothes, they need money, they need service. It's a sacrifice for us that is demanded of us, that we are obligated, that we are indebted to Jesus to do in knowing God and following behind him is to put others before us. In our marital relationships is to recognize God as men is to recognize I'm so supposed to live sacrificially for my wife, for my children. Putting their needs over mine because I'm a follower of Jesus. Because that's what God has done for me. The whole point of the message today is that following Jesus comes with a sacrifice. These men got out of a boat and they left everything. Have you been willing and are you willing with what God has called you to? Get out of your boat and walk behind him and leave what it is that you have to in order to do that. Let's pray. Dear God, come to you now. Thank you for another chance to come worship you uh, and to learn more about you.
uh, so that we can understand fuller what it is that you've called us to in loving people and loving you and being a part of your furthering of your kingdom, God. Uh, pray this week for opportunities for us to uh, love our neighbors, to love those at work, to love those at school, to love those we are around. Uh, we pray for opportunities that we will recognize when needs are uh, made available to us, that we will have the strength, the desire, the want to uh, to reach out and to meet those needs for you, your kingdom, uh, and in love and of worship. Uh, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for dying so that we could know you. Again, we just pray for uh, pray for this week that we will be used to impact your kingdom. Again, we thank you for all you've done. We pray and pray. Amen.